so this, uh, this series is all about this idea of hidden assumptions. Um, it's actually all about idols. Um, and, and idols, by, by that I mean idols are anything that compete for the throne um, of our heart with God. They're anything that we have a tendency to put above God. And that is specifically, in, in fact, if you're a person who, um, who follows God, who follows Jesus. Uh, but for all of us, no matter where you are in terms of your faith or your walk with God, um, for some of us who have been walking with Jesus kind of faithfully for a while, for others of us who are just exploring faith, you're brand new to the whole thing, or maybe you're re-exploring it as an adult because you were handed a Sunday school faith and, and at the rigors of the real world, and then somewhere in there, as the rigors of the real world kind of met a Sunday school theology, you kind of lost it, and now you're reinvestigating it for, for whatever reason. We all put something central in our life. We all put something central in our life. This is not something that is specific, an idea that is specific to any brand of religion, Christianity, or theism. We all have some type of a north star that sits in the middle of our lives. And for every one of us, beyond that, there is a reason we do it. Because you're a reasonable person, or at least hopefully you are, or somewhat reasonable of a person. And I'm hopefully somewhat reasonable of a person. Because we talked about last week, one of the things that we know about reasonable people is reasonable people are not persuaded by reasonable arguments or else everyone would think like you think on Facebook, right? Because you would post it and you have such valid points and it's so, wow, that's so insightful, right? No, but we are reasonable people and we put things at the center of our life for a reason. But the problem is, is we rarely stop to examine can it fulfill its promise? We rarely stop to think, can it actually fulfill the thing that we hope it to do? And for many of us, again, they're not bad things that we put in the center of our life. They're success. They are family. They are, you know, consistency or sustainability or comfort. They're careers and, and, and perhaps helping people, altruistic thoughts and ideas. But we all put something at the center of our lives. And beyond that, we all have a reason we put that at the center of our lives, but we rarely stop to think, can it actually fulfill its promise? Because here's the premise behind this whole series, that the things that we put in the center of our lives, if they are not God, they will never satisfy. They will temporarily satisfy, but they will never fully and finally satisfy. And so instead of just in this series saying, okay, <clears throat> let's talk about some idols that we need to take out of our life, it says, let's take a look at the things that we have a tendency to idolize that sit at the throne of our life and say, why is it there? Because again, if you're a reasonable person, there's a reason that it's there. There's a function that it fills. And we can't simply remove them. We have to replace them. But before we replace them, we have to realize why they're there in the first place. And so this is a little bit like Inception style, if you will. We're not just going to go like, for here's the thing. We're going to go a couple layers deep on this and say, why are these things where they are? And here's what we're going to find, in fact, today, this is, this is specifically important, is that we're going to find the real trouble with this. The real trouble with this is the thing that it sits at the center of our life oftentimes creates our identity. Isn't that true? The thing that's at the center of your life oftentimes creates your identity. In fact, one of the worst questions I hear people say, they say, who are you? I am Ben, right? I'm like, I, how do you want me to answer that question, right? And then, and then they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll have this deep kind of sometimes existential, like, no, who are you? I am still Ben, right? <clears throat> and then somebody, sometimes you ask that question, like, oh, well, I am, and you say your occupation, I'm, you know, or maybe I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a Jesus follower. This is who I am. But the reality is, is that our idols begin to create our identity. 
and specifically today, I think perhaps has the most tendency to create the identities that we have. It's the idol of success. The idol of success. Now, when I say success, there are generally two reactions to a thought of an idol of success. Some of you are type A, driven, entrepreneurial, and that's probably this crowd because you're at the 915 church service, all right? The 8 o'clock people, it's like, I'm going to have to tweak this a little bit to try to make it apply. But the fact that you're at church at 915 this morning, you're just thinking, wow, like this is 100% me, okay? If you're online, by the way, you're like 50% in on this, okay? Because you're, you're online. Just playing, we love you. <clears throat> but there's two types of reactions. One is, you're, you're the type A, you're the go-getter, and you know, as I know, because this is, this is 100% me, that, that this idea of success, this idea of achievement, this idea of climbing the mountain, the process of climbing the mountain, the achievement of being on the top of the mountain, right? Like, there is something intrinsic about that inside of me that drives me and wakes me up in the morning. And for some of you... <laughs> You're like, nothing wakes me up in the morning, right? Like, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to do anything. I am so content to just exist. And while that might be true in a lot of, here's what I, was, here's what I would contend. That in, for all of us, each one of these idols that we're going to go through week to week, some of them, they are the major idol and some of them are minor idols. But we find ourselves all in this because all of us want to be successful at something. All of us want to be successful at something. And that doesn't mean vocationally. All of us, even if your idea of success is being really good at relaxing, right? Some of you, like Netflix, you are the ultimate relaxer, right? Like, like you just chill all the time. And that's good for you, right? But that's your thing. I, let me tell you what I would love. I would love to be so successful that I can be the ultimate relaxer. Isn't that the ultimate success? Okay, I thought someone was going to have my back on that one, to be honest. Right? Like you make so much that all you have to ever do is sit at the beach on 38 and listen to Jimmy Buffett. Okay, thank you. I had like one woo. Yeah, appreciate that. If you don't know who Jimmy Buffett is, let me tell you, we pray for you. I'm so sorry for your generation, okay? But isn't this, isn't this the truth? Right, like some of us, that wakes us up in the morning, and some of us, like, it, it's just a little bit more beneath the surface, but we want to be successful at something. We want to be successful at school. We want to be successful in relationships. We want to be successful at saving. Some of us want to be successful at spending. Some of us want to be successful. In fact, most of us should want to be successful who are parents at raising our children, and the more it matters to us, the more it has a tendency to become an idol. And the more we put our identity in that thing. In other words, we know that it becomes our identity when if that fails, we don't know who we are. And we don't know what to do with ourselves. It's the idol of success. It's the idol of achievement. Because achievement makes me feel worth, makes me feel value, or summarized achievement and success makes me feel sufficient. I want to believe that I am a good parent. I want to believe that I am a successful human being. I want to believe that that is true of me. And so I do what you do. Which is you go and you try to achieve. And you try to create. And you try to achieve. And you try to create. But isn't this true? No matter how much we achieve... I might be able to achieve more than you. You might be able to achieve more than me. We might be able to be more successful in whatever endeavor that we are compared to one another. But deep down inside of us, there's something that longs for more. In fact, this is why, again, when you read stories and biographies and autobiographies of incredibly powerful people, the commonality 
is people who have achieved extraordinary success have also left a wake of disaster, of toxicity, and oftentimes a lack of health in areas of their life. You don't know why? It's because it was never enough. Success is intoxicating. Achievement is intoxicating. And we long for it and we search for it and we long for it and we search for it and we long for it and we search for it. But we rarely stop to ask the question, if I ever achieve everything that I long to achieve and am successful at every endeavor that I, that I set my mind and I set my heart to, will I actually be content? There's an interesting story that happens in the um, Old Testament. The Old Testament, by the way, the New Testament is very good at, at giving you like line by line. The New Testament is everything when Jesus stepped foot on planet earth and kind of going forward. There's a lot of great insights and kind of one-liners and it creates a cumulative hole in a lot of the letters that were written, how to live for, for God in light of who Jesus was. But the Old Testament has a lot of narrative-based ideas. In one of the history books of the Old Testament, it's called Second Kings. The nation of Israel, which was God's chosen nation um, at that point in time, was a nation who had been through a, a history of, of people and things with God. At first, they were kind of a family. That family grew into a nation. That nation wandered in the desert. As that nation wandered in the desert, the nation kind of took over a land. And God said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Well, as he was the God and they were the people, they would continually rebel. And so eventually they said, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. He said, fine, you can have a king. And they would have kings. And the kings would go to war with other kings as kings typically do. And it never worked well for the nation of Israel. But this one particular time, we're going to read an interesting story. It's an interesting narrative about kind of a warring nation and a thing that happened to one of their leaders. A thing that happened to one of their leaders who achieved incredible success for who he was. And his name was Naaman. Now, I know very few people have probably heard of the name Naaman. But about a month ago, I was sitting in the lobby, and there was a guy who walked up, and I introduced myself, and we were talking. I said, what's your name? He said, Naaman. I was like, are you kidding me? I know nobody with a name Naaman. And he was like, wait, so you know what's in the Bible? I'm like, I'm a pastor. Get out of here, right? <laughs> but we're going to read the story of Naaman. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, in this story, this story, we're going to see ourselves. And this is why I love the Bible, frankly, because we're going to see in this story, we have the same tendency that Naaman had. We have the same issues, character flaws, all that kind of stuff. If you've got your Bible, we're in the NIV this morning in uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. And we get a little introduction. This is kind of the character introduction of the person of Naaman. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. Now, Naaman, that meant he was a big deal. Like, there was the king, and then there was the person who commanded all of the army. And Naaman had extraordinary success in leading this army. He was a great man in the sight of his master. And he was highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram, and he was a valiant soldier. Now he says, okay, let me just tell you a little about, about Naaman. We don't know where Naaman was you know, born and where Naaman was raised and a lot of Naaman's backstory. But it says Naaman, Naaman had maybe rose through the ranks. Naaman was the commander of the army. And Naaman had, had only him and then the king above him. And they were over at this point. They were the ones who were over the nation of Israel. Because of the nation of Israel's disobedience, they were kind of over their overlord. And so as the, you know, commander of the army, he's had a lot of success. And the king is happy with him. 
He is at the point in his career, he is at the point as, as a parent, he is at the point as a student that we all hope to be. The point of success where you think of what is the epitome of success on your arc. For some of you, it's like, man, success for me would be that I would be so successful in school that I could get into any master's program I applied to. <laughs> Let me tell you a secret. That's also your parents' goal, okay? For parents, it's, it's that our kids would be at any place in school where they can get into any school that they wanted to. It's that you would be so successful in your career that other people maybe in your career would come and look to you for guidance and for thoughts and for insights. That you would be the example in your industry. Whatever it is for you, this was Naaman. He was the person, but Naaman had a problem. Specifically, at the end of the verse 1, he was a valiant soldier but he had leprosy. Now, leprosy in their day was basically a death order. I know um, some of you are familiar kind of just through, you know, scriptures and people explaining it. But, but essentially, leprosy was a, a disease that would um, little bit by little bit just kind of deteriorate your body. It would deteriorate especially your skin. Um, it would eventually deteriorate your bones. And kind of inch by inch, you would eventually die. So this was, Naaman was, Naaman was a dead man walking at this point. It was only a matter of time, and every day he probably woke up and he saw these issues. Every day he woke up and he saw these issues. And no matter what Naaman had achieved, he knew that in spite of his success, in spite of his sufficiency as as a military leader, there was some deep level of insufficiency because he was sick. Now, we might not have that on the surface like Naaman did. But for me, as I'm being really honest with myself, and not just thinking, okay, it's fun to go and it's fun to achieve and it's great to work hard and it's great work ethic. Because all of those things are wonderful things. At the core of what we experience is oftentimes a drive to be, sufficiency, to be sufficient because of a deeply held insufficiency. This is why when our kids aren't successful, we take it personally as parents. Not just because we care about our kids, but because of what it says about us. We want them to be successful 100%. But when your kid is struggling, it's incredibly difficult. This is why when you don't get in the major program that you're going for or the master's program that you're going for or the school that you're going for, it can be incredibly difficult. It's devastating. It oftentimes creates some type of an identity crisis, an existential crisis inside of each one of us. Because we have wrapped our thoughts and wrapped our ideas and wrapped our lives around this. And when we find out that we aren't sufficient, it eats at us. And so Naaman, in all of his success and achievement, had a problem. Verse 2. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So this is this little slave girl. It's this interesting picture, this interesting dichotomy. You've got, you've got this king of the army, right? I mean, he is the commander of the army. And you've got this little slave girl who just got picked up, carried away, is in exile. And she's like, yo, if he, if he just goes and talks to this guy, I think he can help. I don't know about you, but if I'm this little slave girl and I just got, I just got 
my country taken over and enslaved in captivity, I'm probably keeping quiet. I'm like, let that dude die, right? But for whatever reason, this is interesting, there's always a suffering servant, almost always a suffering suffering story that brings this sense of redemption. So Naaman went to his master, that's the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. So he, thinking reasonably, said, by all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. And the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now you got to love this. Because the servant girl never said, hey, yeah, go to the king. She just said, no, I want you to go to the prophet. I want you to go to the prophet. He said, yeah, 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 I, I know what you're saying. But you don't know how us achievers, you don't know how us Enneagram 3s do this, right? We don't just go empty hand and say, hey, can you help me? We're like, I need to bring my worth and my value and show that I am substantial. Look at me, right? And so he goes to the king and says, king, you know, can I have some paid time off? King says, absolutely, which is so reasonable of the king because if he is a great commander, the king would want to do everything under his power to keep him because the keeping him as a great commander keeps him in power as the king. And so he says, yes, go, go. I'll write you a letter. I want you to go do whatever you can to get fixed. And so Naaman goes, he brings tons of silver, tons of gold, a few sets of clothing. And as he walks in, he walks with the letter of the king. In other words, Naaman tries to solve his insufficiency by being even more sufficient. Isn't that interesting? He has this thing that he can't solve, and so he says, okay, in order to solve this, I'm going to do more, which is exactly what we do. Never stopping to think, is this going to help? Is this actually going to be the thing that creates the thing that solves the internal problem that I have? So my kids aren't doing well, so I'm going to be more overbearing. My job isn't going as I want it to be, and so I know I already have a tendency to be a workaholic, and so I'm just going to dive more into work and less into my family. Just more and more and more. So verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, <laughs> he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? <clears throat> I feel like Naaman would be like, yo, I'm in the room. You don't have to say this fellow. By the way, my army destroyed your army, so a little respect would be wonderful. King. He says, see how he's trying See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? And this is what the king thought. This is what the king thought. Naaman goes to the king when he was supposed to go to the prophet, and he says, king, here, here's all this stuff. Now, heal me. And the king's like, oh, I am not the prophet. I am the king. But his internal crisis was, if I don't fix this guy, I'm going to make that king mad. And so I got to do something. And so he just like tears his clothes. He doesn't know what to do. He has this internal crisis because he knows if Naaman doesn't go home fixed, then he is in problem with the king who has already destroyed them once. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. 
Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, his entourage, as he's you know, kind of going into town. And he stopped at the door of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry. Now, you gotta, <laughs> I want you to kind of imagine this. You've got the commander of the army that's strolling into town. And Elisha sees it and says, no, nah, I'm not going to come to the door. Like, I'm going to heal you, but I'm not going to come to the door. He's got his entourage. He's got his chariots. He's got all of his, you know, his, his horses with him. He's got all this stuff. And he thinks he's just walking into town. And, and like, like Elisha's going to be like, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, I under, totally understand. Naaman, you are the man. Naaman, that's your name. And you are Naaman. And we will say your name because you are awesome. And I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to say yes, sir, to you. I'm going to be very deferential to you. He's like, nah, I'm just going to let the servants deal with this one. And this was incredibly disrespectful. But you know what I think he does that? I think he is beginning to set the tone and set the idea that it is not who you are and what you accomplish that ultimately brings healing. And so he just meets this level of grandeur with this level of humility. And says, here's all you got to do. It's easy. You just go down to the river, wash yourself seven times, and you'll be healed. Well, Naaman's response to this is obviously not good one because it came through the, the voice of a servant. But when he went away angry and he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. In other words, I want this to happen in a little bit of a different way. Are not Abana and Parafar, the river of Damascus, Better than any waters of Israel. <laughs> in other words, our water is always better. Couldn't I wash them? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned away and went off in a rage. And here was Naaman's problem. Everything that he had done in life, everything that he had done in life was that he would accomplish something. Something incredible, something grandeur, something of extraordinary significance would be the thing that brought the thing, that healed the thing, that conquered the people. And for the first time, Naaman is square face to face that there is nothing of greatness and grandeur that can be done to bring healing to what Naaman's problem was. Or Naaman's problem was. In other words, Naaman... I know you think it's this great act, but it's actually very simple. And the simplicity of that cure mixed with the method of the messenger of that cure was categorically reprehensible to Naaman. He wouldn't entertain it, not because he wouldn't try it. He wouldn't entertain it because he didn't like it. It just didn't go with what Naaman thought. Because it was all about achievement and success. But God would use his insufficiency to ultimately determine this. So Naaman's servants, again, the servant comes up, verse 13. And he went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more when he tells you, wash 
and be cleansed. He says, Naaman, I know, I know, I know. I know this seems too simple. I know it seems too obvious. But Naaman, if he had told you, go climb a mountain, if he had told you, go slay 10 more armies, conquer 10 more lands, and you will be healed, Naaman, wouldn't you have done it? Naaman would say, yeah. But there's this interesting dichotomy that exists, that the thing that brings us ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction is far simpler and easier. And so I think there's something in the achiever in the room or the achiever online, there's something inside of each one of us that longs and desires to achieve that says, no, 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 I have to earn this. So he says, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Let's just see if this is true. Let's just see if this is right. Let's just see if this is real. So why don't you just go down to the, to the place. And so verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 14. So he went down. He dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. He's like a little baby, you know. And so Naaman, verse 15, and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. So please accept now a gift from your servant. And the prophet answered him because he was having no part of Naaman's bombastic, kind of pretentious, ostentatious presentation. He says, the prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though the man urged him, or Naaman urged him, he refused. You see, here was the thing about Naaman. Here was the thing about Naaman. It was too simple for Naaman. It was too easy for Naaman. Naaman wanted to achieve it. But when Naaman came to the realization, I guess, I guess I'll consider it. I guess I'll give it a try. I'm going to go down the river and I'm going to wash seven times. And it was taking, not Naaman's accomplishments that would ultimately drive him to the realization of who God is. It wasn't his sufficiency or his success. It was his insufficiency that God would ultimately use to prove who he is to Naaman. That it wasn't going to be about what he did. It wasn't going to be about this great accomplishment, or this great feat, or this great, you know, presentation by Elisha. It was simple. Just go down to the river, wash yourself seven times, and you'll be good. Here's why I say that. The reality is, we look for sufficiency. Those areas of insecurity that we drive and drive and drive to be sufficient in, the, the, the place that we desire for significance or for success the most is often the place at its basement level creates an idea or a place that comes from a sense of insecurity. And that's okay because we all have them. To deny having insecurity is probably the greatest insecurity in and of itself. But out of that comes a drive to accomplish and a drive to be successful. And sometimes we look at God and we say, God, no, 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 no. No, if I am going to be valuable as a Christian to you, I have got to achieve all these things. And God says, no, 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 you're valuable because my son died for you. We want to prove ourselves sufficient and be successful. But the reality is, is in all of our success, we will feel, still find ourselves insufficient. But the gospel says this, that we were never supposed to be sufficient. In fact, what Jesus' message was the opposite, was that we are insufficient. 
that all have sinned, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. But we now have sufficiency, not because we're sufficient, but because the ultimately sufficient God died for us, we now have a relationship with him. That because of our insufficiency, because of our sinfulness, we are over here, God's over here, we could not bridge that gap. Jesus became that for us. That in God's love for us, in his sufficiency, in his ultimate sufficiency, he died for us. And here's the beauty of it. When Jesus is my sufficiency, my success is driven from a place of health, but it's simply an ancillary benefit. It doesn't create the holistic development of my identity. If I'm not successful... That's okay. I didn't derive my sense of worth, my sense of self from my success. Like, do I want to be successful? Of course. But it doesn't create internally inside of me this sense of existential self. I mean, we can spend our lives trying to chase the mountain of success. We can spend our lives trying to chase the next accolade or our kids being good enough or our families looking perfect enough or having all the right answers and having all the right, you know, thoughts and ideas. We can chase the, the level of whatever benchmark you want to create of market level success or nonprofit level success or even in the name of altruism and helping people, you know, helping other people levels of success. And let me tell you, all of those things, all of those things are wonderful things. But that's why it's a hidden assumption. And that's why it's tricky. They are wonderful things that were supposed to be complements to the ultimate, which is our relationship with God. That that is where we find sufficiency. That is where we find security. That is where we find worth. Not because I have worth, it's because the God of ultimate worth died for me. And I have said this over and over and over, but it is still true. Do you want to know, if you ever want to know how much something's worth? Not in the spiritual world, just take general you know, principles of economics 101. Something is worth, something's worth is determined by how much someone is willing to pay for it. And you can say your house is worth a million dollars, but if only somebody's only going to pay 100000 it's only 100000 Our intrinsic worth in the image of God is left void because of our sinfulness. But if something's worth is determined by how much someone is willing to pay, how much worth do we have if God would give his son for us? And now, I strive for success. Not because of insufficiency or insecurity, but because I want to glorify God, my father, with whom I am pleased. You see, what happens at the end of a lot of this stuff is we say, okay, man, success, you know, you got to remove that idol in your life. And we're left kind of with this narrative void that, okay, if I replace success with God, then that just means I'm, not, I'm taking out success in my life. And I don't feel like that makes sense. And so to be frank, frank and fair, um, for everyone who has ambition, the church oftentimes drives you away because how we interpret this is now you should no longer strive to be successful. And that's not the case. Those of you guys who know me, you know that I, my, my perpetual problem is taking on far too much because I want to do everything, and I see so much potential in so many different things. But it's not because it makes me who I am. It's because I want it to glorify God. We don't strive for success 
to make God happy with us or to feel a sense of self-worth and validation. We are validated and have self-worth because Jesus died for us. Therefore, we live for him in a way that is successful and hoping that it brings glory to God. And there is a massive difference between the two. So what do you do with all this? What do you do with all this? Well, the first step is really simple. The first step is really simple. It's to simply ask the question, where do I get my worth and my value from? Where do I get my worth and my value from? Is it through what I do? And is it through what I achieve? Or is it through the one who died for me? Where do I get my worth and where do I get my value from? Is it through what I do and what I achieve? Or through the one who died for me? Because the reality is, is that this morning is a shift for anyone. That you say, oh my gosh, I have come to the realization that, man, I have this massive, this massive tendency to just feel sufficient, feel valued, feel adequate through my success. But I need to put God in that place. Tomorrow's probably going to look the same. But there's a shift that happens inside of your heart. There's a satisfaction that happens. There's a contemplation that happens. And so it's an internal thought that you just have to wrestle with. Do I get my worth and my value through what I do and what I achieve or through the one who died for me? Success promises sufficiency. But we all know we will never be that. Jesus is the ultimate sufficiency who died for us. And now we be successful or we long to be successful for him. Let's pray. Jesus, for so many of us, this is just almost a daily battle. One day we are totally satisfied in you and the next day we are totally longing to be filled by the things and the successes and the accolades. I pray for each one of us, you would be central in our life. We would wake up every day being fulfilled and sustained only by you. And as we're all wrestling with this, we're all thinking about this, as we're all trying to figure out where we are in this kind of continuum of thought and idea and achievement and success, we would not find our success, we would not find our worth and our value in what we do or what we achieve, but in you who died for each and every one of us. And I pray that that would drive such a place of contentment, of value, of worth, that we would spend our lives working diligently for you, with excellence for you, creating new places and new spaces that glorify and magnify and replicate who you are, but do it in a way that your kingdom comes to here on planet Earth. That we would live in a way to strive, to achieve, but not because we need to, but because we want people to see you in us and through us. God, would you help each one of us to wrestle with what's at the center of our life? What's the place of the success and the achievement that drives our identity? Our worth and our value. 
And we would find that. Not through what I do, not through what I achieve, but through the one who died for me. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.